Hey Firecrackers, it's Naomi and welcome to the Firecracker Department. Now a quick content warning for all of you. This episode does contain some sensitive talk regarding the Indigenous lives taken by Canada's residential schools. If that's just too much for you right now, I get that. So just skip this episode and take care of yourself. Also a reminder, the Indian Residential School Survivors Society has a 24-hour crisis line available at 1-866-925-4419. We'll also include that link in our show notes. Just make sure you're taking care of yourselves. It's August. How's your summer been? How's everybody doing these days? I have the sensation that I don't want summer to end. I mean, as a kid, didn't you always say that? We're living outside of the city right now, and so there's a part of me that thinks, I don't want to go back to the city. I mean, I love the city because I love the theater life and nightlife and restaurants and music and art galleries. And I'm not overly comfortable yet going into crowds because of COVID. So I'm going to say it, I'm kind of happy hunkering down outside of the city. And I wonder how that transition will be. I've really enjoyed being around nature. It's been a really healing thing for me. My father passed away in December and uh, I don't know, there's something about looking at water. There's something about working in the garden that has been just exactly what I needed. Yeah, he passed away actually in the place that I am right now. I feel like he's still still present somehow, so I think that's helping me as well. How do you feel the transition's coming up for you? Some of you have kids, so you're going back to school. Some of you have kids and you're going back to virtual online learning. How are you doing with all of that? Drop me a line at firecrackerdept. Tell me how you're doing. I feel like this whole pandemic has just been a series of, of transitions and pivots and adapting and staying flexible. And it's not been easy, but I, I have to tell you, having you all along for the ride has been super helpful. So if you're looking for your people, if you're feeling sort of isolated wherever you are, drop us a line, firecrackerdepartment at gmail.com. We'll get you involved. We'll help you find your people. Speaking of finding your people, I found these two amazing friends as we've been building the Firecracker Department core team. Kathleen Harquell is going to do a shout out and I just love her. I don't know where she came from. I don't know what kind of magic carpet she rode in on, but I'm keeping her as a friend. And if you know Kathleen, you'll understand she is like gold. She speaks from her heart, she speaks truthfully, and uh, she's wise, oh my God, so wise, helping us along with the business structure of Firecracker Department. Could not do this without that brain and heart. So here she is, Kathleen Harkwell. Hi folks, Kathleen Harkwell here. I'm an actioneer and a member of the mentorship department, and I want to give Firecracker Lisa Lafferty a shout out. From providing free script consultations to being a brunch regular, Liesl is so supportive of this community and I admire her tremendously. Thank you for all you do, Liesl. It is so great to be in your orbit. Right? And I have to say, Liesl, I mean, I echo all that. Liesl Lafferty is one of a kind creative genius. Not only does she turn up for Firecracker Department in the core team time and time again, but she turns up with with just such pearls of wisdom and guidance and I can't imagine being on this journey without her. It's a true treat to get to know her better through this whole community. And if you ever, gosh, if you have a script that you're struggling with, you've got to jump in on Liesl's script consultations that happen once a month. If you want more information about that, go to our website, firecrackerdepartment.com because they're not only insightful, they are inspiring. Liesl just helps guide in a really inspirational way. So thank you, Liesl, and thank you, Kathleen, for that shout-out. Hey, if you want to do a Firecracker shout-out, you can. Somebody in your life that you're like, I need people to know about this person because they are killing it. Send your short voice memo to firecrackerdepartment at gmail.com. Let me know your name. Let me know the Firecracker you're shouting out and their handles so that we can all follow them and support their work. Give somebody a shout-out today. Now, our guest on the show this week is producer and the founder and executive director of Girls in Film and TV, or GIFT, Camille Baudouin. I met Camille, gosh, I'm going to say three years ago when I had a film in the Whistler Film Festival, and so did she, and I don't even know how we crossed paths. I know that we knew each other from Edmonton, twice removed, because my husband's from Edmonton, so there's a huge group of uh, amazingly funny firecrackers in Edmonton that are from the improv community. So I knew Camille through that world a little bit. And then she reached out when we were at Whistler together and said, hey, let's have a drink. And we had that classic thing where you're texting going, I'm over here. Oh no, I thought six o'clock. No, it was 6.30. And now I'm over here. And then finally we met and we had this great coffee. It was so lovely. And 
The way that she runs GIFT is so beautiful and strikes so many of the same chords that we're trying to do here at Firecracker Department. So I not only loved our chat over coffee, but I sure loved being able to have a longer chat with her on this podcast. Camille has spent the last 15 years building her production company, Mosaic Entertainment, which she co-founded, and spends her time guiding the creative team during the development, the production, and post-production of Mosaic's world-class award-winning content. As I mentioned, Camille is also the founder and executive director of Girls in Film and TV, and that's a not-for-profit dedicated to addressing the need for gender parity and diverse representation on screen through hands-on learning and support. It's an amazing organization. I mean, gosh, it inspires me just to hear about it, but it has inspired so many young female filmmakers to take a crack at it and get creating. It's an amazing venture, and I'm desperate to find new ways of partnering with them because I just think they're incredible. Camille is mixed blood Cree, Haudenosaunee, Métis, and French-Canadian. She is also an alumnus of the National Screen Institute and Banff Centre of the Arts, facilitator for the Whistler Film Festival Indigenous Filmmaker Fellowship, as well as Edmonton's YWCA's 2014 Women of Distinction in Arts and Culture, and one of Avenue Magazine's in Edmonton's Top 40 Under 40. I mean, yes. She's all that. She's a firecracker. With her production company, Mosaic, she's produced a ton of amazing shows, including five seasons of the popular sketch show comedy called Caution, May Contain Nuts, on APTN, and four seasons of the comedy series Tiny Plastic Men on Super Channel. Incredible. If you haven't had a chance to see any of those, you gotta get in on that, right? Caution, May Contain Nuts, and Tiny Plastic Men. She and her co-founder, Eric Rebalkin, produce and distribute countless hours of digital entertainment, nearly 100 episodes of television, three mobile games, and three feature-length films featuring people like Danny Trejo, Colin Mockery, and the late great Alan Thicke. Mosaic's reputation for great comedy is bolstered by their TV series. And a super cool thing about Mosaic is their new teen brand, Spetch, which specializes in smart, empowering content for tween and teen girls. The first release under this new brand is the teen romantic comedy Hashtag Roxy, starring Boo Boo Stewart from Disney's Descendants and the Twilight Films, which recently won Best Teen Tween Movie at the Kids Screen Awards and Best Feature Film at the Alberta Film and Television Awards. And up next for Spetch is Anarchy Anderson, a super fresh and funny half-hour comedy series about the daughter of anti-establishment parents who is running for class president at her high school. I mean, that sounds like a whole bag of fun, right? I mean, so is Camille. Who's kidding who? Okay, without further ado, here it is, my conversation with the one and only Camille Baudouin. How's your head and heart these days? We just came back from a trip seeing very close friends who we consider family and my brother mm -hmm. as well, who I very much consider family. <laughs> so <laughs> that was very healing after, you know, a tough little while. And yeah, now we're back into the reality of life. But my two youngest children who couldn't get vaccinated are quarantining at home for two weeks. So that's going to be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so yeah. They may, they may break into the room at some point, just warning you right now. <laughs> so be it, so be it. It feels like there's a constant sense of <sighs> awareness over healing, right? Like whether you're healing from being on your own because of the pandemic or whether you're healing because of uh, being uh, separated from loved ones and all those things. And then throw into the mix this uh, I don't even know it's not an event but like the recognition the the awakening of the indigenous community and what Canada has been sort of putting under the carpet for so long which puts a whole other level like I'm yeah. really um, I'm really in awe of your community right now the strength of it I'm in awe of my community right now we've had a couple big events recently um, one of which was very industry specific but did reach out beyond the industry and that was uh with uh when michelle latimer was uh accused of you know being on dishonest about her uh her background and uh that was incredibly hard on our entire community and divisive and uh yeah. you know i think everyone felt that who was in our industry in our community very deeply and it was really mm -hmm. emotional and uh, then between that, and then of course, this much, much 
deeper, even more emotional thing being reawakened with the uh, the finding of the bodies at the residential schools. It's been tough, really tough. And I yeah. found that uh, Canada Day was a lot harder on me than I expected. And I got extremely emotional about our country's opinion about that and mm. about how people were, were responding to it. And to be honest, my feeling was there was a huge lack of compassion from so many people. On the other hand, there was a huge compassion also that I saw from a lot of people, but it's hard when you're, you're feeling like your community is in so much pain and mourning and uh, you're getting this TFB kind of fucking bad for you, but we're yeah. going to go, you know, set off fireworks and wave a flag and not even think about how that might be affecting the people around you, right? It was, it was really mm -hmm. hurtful. I was quite hurt by it. And I was surprisingly hurt. I used to love Canada Day. And I used to yeah. be like the one with yeah. the red and white, the flags on my cheeks and like, and, you know, it just <laughs> feels so weird to me now, even just seeing a flag flying yeah. right now. It's weird. It, yeah. Me too. Yeah. When I see a flag, I'm like, I wonder if you're aware of what that represents. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. And it's weird. Like, you know, going back to this feeling you were saying about uh, how the country just kind of re or awakened to indigenous history and indigenous issues when those first bodies were found. My first reaction to it was weirdly blase when I heard that the bodies had been found because my first thought was, well, yeah, <laughs> like, of course right. they did. Um, survivors yeah. have been telling us for decades that these bodies are there. Like my cousin was telling me that at the Edmonton residential school, she was there with an auntie and the auntie just like, look, you know, they were at, it's called Poundmaker Lodge. And she just pointed at a part of the ground and said, that's where the bodies are buried right no markers nothing but she knows because she she went to that school and uh, you know that's the case for everybody and we've been hearing these stories forever so at first I was just like yeah and then after a while I started to get really mad because I was seeing all these posts on Facebook of people who were saying they were ashamed and upset and couldn't believe this and then I started to get mad and I'm like but but the truth and reconciliation commission books yeah people speaking out like this has been happening for so long <laughs> it's how been here just, yeah how are you just feeling bad now <laughs> like, so yeah, that really like, me too. I get that like why do you think that is and I, I mean I'm equally responsible for that because I was always aware of the history of the indigenous community and yet there's something about this last um discovery that has really like like really put toothpicks on my eyelids do you know like mm -hmm. it's there's something about this time, maybe because of the earlier Black Lives Matter movement. And now we're like, oh my God, this has to stop. Like we have to actually yeah. take action now. Why do you think things have changed? Well, you know, I mean, to be honest, and this was kind of my third reaction. I went through all these stages when this first happened. Yeah. My third reaction was, no, this that like, it really hit me hard as well. After I started thinking about that, you know, we've actually found these babies, right? We found these children. Yeah. And uh, now we can bring them home. They can have a proper burial. They can be recognized. Those families that didn't know what happened to their children can have closure. Like, it's so significant. And then I, mm -hmm. I became much more forgiving towards Canadians who this is their first real understanding of the significance of it. Um, and mm -hmm. now I just feel like, okay, this is actually an opportunity, right? This is an opportunity for us to further the education and, you know, and, welcome Canadians into the fold who may not have gotten it before but they get it now right and so I, I had yeah. to just like let go of my anger that they didn't know before and just be okay with that and and you know it really was an emotional grieving processing time for all of us Indigenous people as well it was you know I spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about my grandparents who went to residential schools um, I had long conversations with my first cousin who grew up with my grandparents. She lived with them her whole life. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she knew them better than anyone. And, uh, and so I spent a lot of time talking with her, especially about my grandmother who had some really horrific experiences in residential school. And it really shaped who she was and mm. how we became. Of course, and, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. And I, I used to say getting super personal now, but like I, I used to say that our family came out relatively unscathed because even though my grandmother attended residential school and my grandfather, they both had really bad experiences. They didn't really pass that. They weren't abusive. They, you know, I think my grandfather had I, he, like none of them had addictions or substance abuse. They stayed married. They had like eight, nine, nine kids. And, you know, and yeah. all of those kids are, you know, pretty well adjusted, great kids. And, uh, you know, my dad was an amazing dad. So I didn't really feel like I had, I suffer from intergenerational trauma. But uh -huh. a few years ago, and my cousin reiterated this when I was speaking to her, I realized that I was the perfect results that the government was trying to do when it came to residential schools because like my grandmother and grandfather never I mean they never denied they were indigenous they very much were and but they also didn't um make any effort to pass on any indigenous culture to their children or their grandchildren um because right. they were ashamed of it and they were taught that it was bad and it was shameful and uh, mm -hmm. they, so they really just kind of, I, I think they were kind of survivalists. They were just like, you know what, whatever is gonna make it easier in our world to survive. So really their children, like all of um, my dad's generation, um, really didn't make any effort either to, you know, hang on to their indigenous culture or to, you know, really, I guess, this is probably the wrong word, but like flaunted, you know what I mean? Like they kind of, you know, wouldn't talk about it with people if they didn't have to. And I think that got passed on to me. So it was really, again, I never felt shame, but being blonde and blue eyed, um, I've also never felt, I've always felt a bit of a disconnect. I want to ask you what your grandparents' names were, because I do feel like, I, like I personally feel like the more we tell these stories, the better, uh, the more potential we have to heal. So yes. like, tell me about your grandparents. What were their names? Oh, most wonderful people in the world. I adored them so much. Um, so my, my cookum uh, was, her name is Florence Dion and she married. Great uh, name. Yeah, she married Richard Mitchell. Um, so she became Florence Mitchell. And uh, yes, my, my, my cookum was uh, raised on the- What's cookum? Cookum is, is grandmother in Cree. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I, I understand that, uh, you know, there was this element of, like you say, um, like not rocking the boat, right? Let's yeah. just keep things cool so that we can have a family that doesn't exist with the trauma that we have witnessed. witnessed. Yeah, like I, my, I get that. My grandfather, for sure, like his survival technique um, was to just not talk about traumatic things and, uh, um, so to give you an example, my dad always talks about this because he was, he was fought in the second world war. So my dad would ask him questions. So what was it like in the war? Tell me some of the stuff. And he just, all he would say is rats, rats as big as cats. <laughs> That's what I remember. Right. <laughs> she just doesn't want to relive that trauma. So yeah. And, and I think my grandmother, everything that happened to her, she just, think to a degree felt like either that was just what happens and she was pretty forgiving about it even though the stuff that happened to her was horrific um mm -hmm. but she and she was very very catholic for her whole life like um right. very devout catholic and uh mm -hmm. yeah so i think part of it was that she was just really you know the residential school worked right it did what it yeah. was supposed to do I mean, there's also this element of like, it wasn't so bad for us, which I've heard before with the indigenous uh, community that have been through residential yeah. schools, where In like somebody case, like your grandparents like survived it, but it is like, it's not. Oh, it was bad. Yes, I mean, ahead. like, I, I think out of respect for her, I'm not going to share the stories I've heard. Yes. But it's as bad as of you course. can think. It was, it was as bad as you can think. And her, her sister yeah. um, at about 12 years old died in residential school um and the story I heard about how she died um I'll tell this one I feel like I can tell this one but uh, apparently she got her period and the nuns said she was dirty and bad and uh 
showered her in a cold shower and then put her outside in minus 40 weather. And, uh, you know, the, the official story is she died of tuberculosis, but the story I heard from my cousin that my cooking told her was that that's what happened and that's how she died. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm not belittling. Yeah, and, and I don't mean to belittle her, but it was just yeah. like, yeah, but somehow she doesn't see any of this as being bad enough that yeah. she wouldn't even take the class action lawsuit payout. She was alive. Yeah, interesting. And she was like, no, no, I'm not going to take it. Yeah. So you yeah. think there's so many people out there that are, are that way as well, that they're so damaged that they don't even realize they're damaged. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. And then I also think about like, I think about you, like how do you take that information and pass it on to your kids? Like in the, in the, in the storytelling sense, you want them to be proud of their heritage. So how do you change, not change the story, but how do you make that story something that you can like get strength from? Yeah. And you know, the best thing I've heard from a lot of people in our community, and I think this really hit home for me is that the best way that we can recognize and fight against what happened to our ancestors and us, those who are still alive, who've experienced residential school is to recapture and make sure that our culture and our beliefs stay alive. So that's what I've passed mm-hmm. on, especially to my two older kids. My youngest one is, is six. So he's not, you know, not quite there yet. So he understands the basics of residential school, but especially my oldest who's 15 now and same thing. He's got like red hair, blue eyes. He wasn't brought up on reserve, you know, and like, so right. Um, he definitely feels the same disconnect that I feel, but what I told him, because he's kind of like, well, I don't know, you know, I just, I don't like, is this me? Right. And I said, you know what, it's your mm-hmm. duty. It's actually our duty as indigenous uh-huh. people and as descendants of residential school survivors to reignite and carry on the indigenous culture that they lost. And so, mm-hmm. and I've heard that from other people and, and that was a big part of healing when um, these first babies were found and as they continue to be found, um, I'm hearing a lot from our community about using the tools that the churches and government tried to take away from us as our healing tools, right? And that's, you know, so using the song, the drumming, the dancing, smudging, the spirituality, all of that as, as the tools that we can heal with. It's kind of like a big fuck you to all the and I will also say like the story of the residential schools is is traumatic a hundred percent and there is such joy around the indigenous community that has to be also celebrated to balance Absolutely. out that trauma so that we're not I can't remember what panel uh somebody was somebody was speaking on it was regarding like film and tv uh representations in the indigenous community and um she said i just want to see more joy more indigenous joy yes. because guess what it's so there like oh my oh, god like yeah. i uh my uh, ever right like yes you're 100 percent right and uh you know that kind of goes into i think my career and what i've been doing because yeah. that's all I experienced in life. I mean, if you want to find, I, I dare you to find a funnier, more lighthearted people than the Indigenous people. That's what's funny is that, yes. you know, right now, obviously we're grieving. And so you're hearing a lot of that. And, you know, there's always talk of the trauma and the addictions and the issues and stuff like that. But the fact is, is that like the Indigenous people are hilarious. We're funny. We oh like- gosh the teasing that goes on in families, like you have to have a yes. thick skin to be an indigenous family. <laughs> My uncles and cousins could yes. you under the table <laughs> and anyone right. who joined our family. So, you know, like when my husband started to join our family, um, you know, he's got this very classic white boy kind of look, right? And uh, yeah. my, my uncles were like, you remind us of someone who do you, you remind us of Skippy from Family Ties, Michael Keaton's best friend. <laughs> from then on they called him skippy right so like that's that's how our family right and that's exactly yeah media does not get shown a lot so that's always been our focus with our company 
um, our first series was Caution May Contain Nuts, which was an Indigenous-led multicultural sketch comedy series. And we like to say that we were equal opportunity offenders. We skewered everything. We made fun. You know, we dealt with a lot of pretty heavy-duty um, uh-huh. but in a very yeah. Fun- right? Like, and I love to do that. And since then, that's really been our focus is comedies big time. And we're still developing comedies, you know, around Indigenous characters and by Indigenous creators, because it really, there isn't enough out there. And I think people do tend to see one of two stereotypes when they look at Indigenous people. And I see this a lot in Hollywood Mm -hmm. is there the um, tragic you know oh went through so much trauma addiction on the street like you know or you know poor that kind of thing there's there's all of that or they see the stereotypical stoic you know spiritual sun and stars (laughs) bullshit character right and so the problem is is that I think for the most part we are not seen as just regular normal human beings I know. So I love this discussion so much because I think we need to challenge our industry to change, to change our mindset. And I feel like folks like you and the work you're doing with Mosaic and with GIF, that's, that's changing it. But, but with this, um, I don't know this, the, the grief that you're in right now, how are you, how are you finding yourself being able to turn it into like your passion, which is comedy? You know, honestly, I, so I'll, I'll, I'll give an analogy because it's, it's a similar situation. So when the Me Too, Me Too movement happened, well, really, let's, let's go back. When Trump got elected and when okay. let's go back. was found and like when all this stuff that just felt like such a blow to women's yeah. rights and to, you know, like it was so painful as a woman. So I think any woman can recognize like how hard that was and uh, mm-hmm. just feeling like, holy crap, you know, like we need to rise up. We, you know, the fact that there's a president in office who said that he can grab women by the pussy is insane, right? Like it was so right? hurtful as a woman. And the only thing that kept me going and not feeling hopeless was that I had started Girls in Film and Television and that I felt like I, oh, I would yeah. do something. So just by feeling like I'm doing something in my little world, was what kept yes. me going and kept me not just going crazy right and so yeah. I, I feel yeah. the same way about this like in some ways I feel so helpless when it comes to indigenous issues in Canada and the world North America because I'm just one little person and I can't you know I can't skew elections except for give my one little vote and I can't you know there's only so much I can do on an everyday basis um and it gets mm-hmm. exhausting, you know, like there's only so many Facebook battles you can have with racists before you start to really lose hope yeah. that there's any chance, right? Just knowing that in, I have a voice on screen and I can do the best I can through that voice is what keeps me going, I think, yeah. You and I are so on parallel journeys like that. Like I remember you and I sitting down in Whistler. You remember yeah. we, we played like a text tag for hundred hours and then we were finally like seeing each other we just looked at each other going it happened we made this happen but I do feel like we have the same sort of mindset with that where you're like like my little vote doesn't feel powerful but my voice within like firecracker department or your voice within gift which is girls in film and tv and we'll get into that in a second but that actually has power do you remember that moment where you're watching like the effects of Trump being elected and then you're going oh we got to get louder you remember? Yes, yes. And you know, in some ways, it's funny, like, it's not a popular opinion. But in some ways, I feel like Trump getting elected was just a really great catalyzer for the women's movement and the Black Lives Matter movement, right? I agree. People just realized, holy crap, we still have a lot more work to do, right? And we just... Like the amount of marches in the streets and the everything that happened since he got elected to me is just like I don't know I mean in my in my hopeful mind in my hopeful heart I feel like Trump was like you know the racist conservative uber right-winged last gasp 
and that, you know, people who are socially conscious are really what's dominant now and that, you know, mm-hmm. that we can do this. That's what I hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's that's so true. And I think it's funny when he first got elected, I was, I was trying so hard to hold on to hope. And I started like doing a series of tweets saying thank you to Trump because I thought that was like a funny (laughs) angle to take. Thank you for making me get louder. Thank you for um, fueling a fire in me to get going on things. Yes. And I mean, it didn't last for long because I got real, real down about him. So I I stopped, I stopped using social media as my platform for, for uh, rage, to be honest, because I had such rage around it that I turned it into like firecracker department. I'm like, you know what? We're going to like get something so beautiful and shiny and positive. We're going to outshine like assholes like you. Yes. I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Did you turn your focus to uh, girls in film and TV and, and talk to me a little bit about that organization? Cause um, I speak about that organization so much to folks, just so you know, cause I'm so proud that that exists. Oh, I'm so awesome. uh, enamored with what you created. Yeah, um, so Girls in Film and Television actually was born from an analysis of uh, the media landscape at the time when we were, we we started development on a feature film called Hashtag Roxy, which was like a teen romantic comedy based on Cyrano de Bergerac and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, some really great uh, female characters in it and, uh, and we knew that it was geared towards teen and teen girls, right? So I started, we started to do a really deep, uh, you know, dig as far as like, what kind of content is out there for teen and tween girls? And I was absolutely floored at how little there was at the time. It was disgusting. And what was there was so mindless and condescending. And I was just like, oh my God, this is what our girls are watching. And at the time too, which I still do, obviously I have my, my middle child is a girl and uh, the amount of times she would get excited when we would watch a Hollywood movie and there was a female character that was interesting. It was kind of, it was so, it was so disconcerting. Like uh, an example of that, we were watching Solo, (laughs) you know, the Han Solo movie, right? Oh yes. yes. And when she realized that the android was a female like the it's like um i think it's lando's kind of lando calrissian's uh, I mean, this is beyond my my knowledge yeah. but yes i'm gonna just keep nodding <laughs> i'm like only half star wars but uh yeah it was like lando calrissian's uh kind of right hand co-pilot and it was a female android with a ton of attitude and by far the funniest yeah. character in the whole show and when she realized the android was female she was so excited right? She's like, oh my God, it's a girl, right? And that's the way she is with most movies that we watch is like, you know, when there's a female character, she gets so excited. And like, that is a problem. That is a problem that she has to get excited when she sees a good female character, right? Like that should be the norm. (laughs) So all of that made me realize that there still was so much change that had to be done in media and uh, to me, the only way I could see that happening was to change who's behind the camera, right? Um, and we kind of looked at the landscape again and what was going on. And for sure, there was a big effort um, going on to help women at the professional level. But the problem was, is that there was nothing going on to encourage girls and support girls to consider the career right from the beginning. And so that's where we saw right. that we help is by providing opportunities. And I thought back to my own childhood and I was like a huge film buff, loved movies so much. And I think I was probably about 14 or 15 when I decided I wanted to become a filmmaker and I didn't know mm-hmm. what I wanted to do, but I wanted to be in the film industry and I wanted to make movies. And uh, it was next to impossible for me to find opportunities to gain experience in the industry, um, you know, lived in Edmonton, that probably didn't help, but that's the problem, right? Is that girls from all areas should be able to find those opportunities. And I applied for film school at, in grade 12, that's when I apply, in grade 12, I applied for film school at Simon Fraser and I didn't get in because I didn't have enough experience. Like talk about 
you know, like the most frustrating thing in the world because I would have, if I could have, I was actively looking for experience and I couldn't find it. Um, so mm -hmm. I ended up getting into the industry another way. I went to school for something completely different and got into the industry later on. Um, but yeah. to me, that was just a big thing where I'm like, I want to give girls that experience and the portfolio that they can work on and inspire them to know that they can do this. And so we'll do everything from like, you know, we do five day workshops where they'll, uh, the girls will write, shoot and edit their own short film in small groups. They learn on all, you know, professional editing software. They write a script properly formatted, all that kind of stuff. And uh, if they're interested in going to film school, we will actively help them with their applications. So they can come to us and we can help them write their applications. And if they want to just go into the industry straight out of high school, um, we will introduce them to people. We will try to get them placed and we will do everything we can to basically help them take that first step. So that's, we, we have a saying, once a gifted girl, always a gifted girl. So you're, you're in our fold and we will help you. <laughs> that's so lovely. Now, and was that like when you were first like 13, 14 and thinking, I want to get involved in film, did you know that the role that you hold right now existed? I didn't really know what a producer did. I don't, I think most people don't know what a producer does. But <laughs> I mean, they still don't. And we're in the industry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, to my, in my mind, it was like producer, writer or director. I didn't know for right. sure. I just knew I wanted to do something. Yeah, and I mean, to be honest, now I'm kind of moving towards wanting to be a writer and a director. I've been producing yeah. long enough and I really want to yeah. get my hands dirty more. Um, I, I guess I feel like too, I've been so close with the creative for 15 years on everything that we've done, mm -hmm. but I've never actually taken on that exact role, even though I've gotten so many parts of it for so long. So yeah, yeah. I'm kind of going backwards. I think most people go from writer and director to producer, but I'm like, I'm gonna go do writing and directing now. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's actually what makes good writer directors too. And they have the inside scoop on producing and vice versa. Like if folks start out mm -hmm. as writers and then they become producers, like I think it's all tools on the tool belt. The more we know about the other person's role, the better we are because then we respect what they're doing. Oh yeah. <laughs> we don't really... Well, then I started yeah. on the lowest rung and I don't regret it at all. Like I started as a location PA hauling garbage so I understand yeah. production. I, you know, worked in production for many years before we started producing. And I think that's also really important just to understand. And my, my partner, he also worked in production for everything from locations to a being to like, you know, sound. And so he gets it too. And that makes a huge difference when you're trying to produce something, mm -hmm. that's for sure. <laughs> so now, do you, how's the balance for you? Because because I see that you have put yourself in a position of mentorship and leadership and, you know, producing other folks work. And then now the, the, the tables are sort of turning a little bit to you going, okay, now I want my voice to be heard through my work, through my work as a writer or a director. How do you find balancing that so that your output and you're getting input? Do you know what I mean? It's really hard. I think because um, I definitely, like, I think the reason why I never did take on the writing and directing role before was because my focus was so much about lifting up other people and supporting other people's careers. So now to try to be like, no, it's my turn, me now. <laughs> it's kind of hard. Mm -hmm. I'm finding that difficult. And I'm also obviously trying to find the time because we're still producing. I keep going, yes, I'm going to write that script. And it's like, okay, this is hard because I have three kids and we're trying to run a business as well. And, um, so all of that is, is definitely challenging. And for sure, it feels like, I think what you were getting at with, uh, it feels weird to be like going, okay, I'm a complete newbie at this after being in 15 years in the industry, but I'm like brand new at directing. Mm -hmm. So I actually uh, really luckily got onto a show as uh, director shadow. I shadowed Leslie Hope. So she directed like, some Star Trek series. And then she came to Vancouver to direct a few episodes of Snowpiercer. I got to sit in after much difficulty, especially during COVID, but the producer was amazing and bent over backwards and found a way to get me on set. So yeah. I got to shadow her. 
And uh, she kept, every time she would introduce me to someone, she would use the quotation mark thing, air quotes. She'd be like, she's shadowing me. Because <laughs> like, I have all this experience as a producer. But I'm like, right. no, I really am. <laughs> I'm learning a lot, right? <laughs> but she was like, yeah. you're too serious to be shadowing me. Are you sure you're going to learn something? And I was like, no, I definitely learned a ton. It was amazing. But Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting about the priorities. Because I think this is something that... Um... I don't know if this is a female thing or not, but like the the want and the passion behind supporting each other and then the importance of supporting yourself. And like in Firecracker World, we often talk about like the Venn diagram where like you're supporting yourself and you're supporting Firecracker where they overlap. Yeah. So finding like that sweet spot where you go like, actually I can't, I, I can't put my priorities in that bucket right now because I got to write another draft and that has to take uh, precedence. Do you find yourself yeah. battling with that? Yes, all the time. And I tend to lose the battle. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I love that you guys do, by the way, the, and I will start paying attention to this, uh, the, the creative action Wednesdays. I'm going to start doing that. That's a great way yeah. of just saying, okay, once, once a week, what are you going to do for yourself and push yourself forward? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important, you know, there's a lot of talk about like, oh my gosh, I saw this lecture and I was so inspired or I saw this film or I spoke to this person and then my feeling is like what are you doing with that inspiration because it's only gonna it's only gonna simmer before it fizzles out you gotta like fan that fire into something that fuels yourself yeah I mean I'm not good at it like it's way easier for me to support other people than take the lead on my own projects and thank goodness I have folks in my core team that are all like how's your writing? Like Winnie Wong is always like, how's your writing? What are you working yes. on? So it keeps me <laughs> on my own trajectory, but you need those kind of cheerleaders yes. to make sure that you're, you're not going to wake up when you're 80 going, oh man, I forgot to pursue the thing I really love. Yes. Yeah. No, that's yeah. great. I mean, and totally everyone I think needs those kind of cheerleaders who just push yeah. you and say, okay, do this. And that's, yeah. I mean, I, I love the firecracker community for that. And and just seeing the support. So with your new path as a director, what are your sort of, other than making it a priority, like, are, do you have any hurdles? Do you have any challenges that you see ahead of you? Or are you just like, I just gotta do it? I mean, I, I think it's, it's the same challenge anyone has, uh, which is, you know, the chicken and egg. I don't have experience, so how do I get hired? How do I get hired if I, mm-hmm. you know, how do I get experience without getting hired, that kind of thing. And I'm really in the same position. I don't have any director credits. So even though like I have worked so closely on set and I've uh, behind the scenes, like in post-production, I'm like on top of everything. I'm so, I'm so tied to everything we do creatively, but that's not a credit. And obviously I have a little bit of extra power that way and that we are producers. Um, So I'm hoping that I can find that project that we could do that I could direct. But, you know, that's not easy either because we, we're producing fairly big things, but I'm still hopeful. So I'm going to, you know, try to just, I think I just need that first, that first experience. And I, I think, you know, I think as women, the other thing with directing is women tend to get more nervous about technical things, you know, and, uh, and I don't, and I, so I have to kind of get over that and just like, oh, you know mm-hmm. what? I understand what shots are. I can put together a shot list. I can learn a few lenses. Like, you know what I mean? Yes. So that's, that's kind of where but I'm also, at. That's, that's also what your DOP is for. Like that's their, mm-hmm. you know, that's their forte. And I mean, who's kidding who? I've seen many men step into directing when they've had no experience. And they're like, yes. I'm going to try directing an episode and they just do. So oh, let's God, just do so it. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of done with the, um, like, the tr- this is the thing. The tricky part is that because you've been in the industry for so long, people, or maybe it's you, like maybe you're in your heart, you're like, I should know this stuff. I've been in the industry. I should know what lens to use. And yet you're, you're a newbie in that world. So you have to allow yourself some learning time. Yeah, you're right. And I, I, you're right. Women, we're the hardest on ourselves. There's no question. Oh, so but, hard. You know, it's ridiculous. It's, 
And also, I think, like, I have also witnessed firsthand when we've brought on women directors onto our show, how the crew treat them differently. And that's, you know, I, so I definitely, I feel like after 15 years in the industry, I have a pretty thick skin and a pretty loud voice. So I, I feel like I can get by that. But one of the funniest things, funny, haha, funny, sad, uh, that Leslie said to me that I was like, oh my God, you're so right. She said, I think she heard it from Olivia Wilde and said, the three words that female directors will hear a, like way more often than male directors is, are you sure? Right. <laughs> and she said, for sure. Like she hears that all the time from men in the industry when she says, you know, I want this kind of shot, blah, blah, blah. Are you sure? <laughs> it's like, yes, I'm yeah, sure. Cause I just said yeah. it out loud. Yeah. It's such a, it's such an interesting line we have to walk and I'm, I'm not crazy about it. I'm not happy about it, but I think there's um, yeah. there's a way to do it that you can find your path. Does your team know that you want to direct and write? Uh, you know, I'm I'm letting it known. I haven't done like any big announcement on social media or anything like that. I don't think I'm quite at that point, but uh, people close to me professionally definitely know. Um, mm-hmm. Certain director mentors of mine know. Yeah, so I definitely let people know that way. But yeah, you know, I think that experience, just going back to that experience of women directors and the experience they have on set was also to me a big reason why I started GIFT because we're not just Mm -hmm. trying to train directors on GIFT, we're trying to train women in all aspects of the industry. And I think if you have parity in a crew, if you have women and lead roles throughout the crew, it's gonna be so much more supportive of an environment for women directors, right? And women leaders. So that to me is half the battle, honestly, is, you know, having less people to say, are you sure? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. I have a, I have a running list in my head of, of, uh, when I have my show dot, dot, dot. Do you have those kind of things in your brain of like, yes. Tell me. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I mean, as a producer, uh, there are actually ones where I'm like on the next show dot, 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 but yes. <laughs> yeah. So a big thing for sure is the whole attitude thing. I think for too long, we've put up with crappy attitudes and people who are downright mean in departments and stuff like that. And I'm just, I'm done with that. I refuse done. to let anyone be mean anymore. And I'm going to track them down and fire them because <laughs> I just, to me, like, honestly, atmosphere and set is so important and no one should so feel, important. yeah, no one should feel like it's okay for someone to be mean to yeah. them. Right. So it's such a simple thing, but it's so weird in our industry because it's so high pressure that I think some people feel like this, they have the right to be snippy and rude to someone else. And I just don't, I don't get it. It's just, it's just fear. Everybody's just scared. Like they're scared of like losing their job or they're scared of not delivering for the person that's higher status than they are. Um, yeah. But to, I, I, how, would you, how would you cultivate a, a set of uh, lacking in meanies? So we had an experience with a key person in our crew that we found out later on had, uh, this was pre-Harvey Weinstein, but it was basically our Harvey Weinstein experience where we had no idea, but this person had a history of uh, abusing their position of power uh, towards women and uh, in a pretty awful way. And once we found out about that, we approached that person and said, we are no longer working with you anymore. And that had pretty big fallout for that person who had had a big career up until then. It just shows me how many people just don't share this stuff, <laughs> which drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. Like he, he had a reputation in uh, the theater industry for this for years and years and nobody mm-hmm. told us about it. And then we got him writing and directing for us. And then I was like, what? Um, so anyway. Yeah. So after that happened, the next season of the show that we made, we put a big memo out, the entire crew right at the beginning of prep that said, we have a zero tolerance policy for any kind of abuse or discomfort for women, like anything like that. So if anyone feels uncomfortable, please come to us. But the thing that we had to do was we realized early on that people don't feel comfortable coming to the big boss, which we were, which is weird. I don't feel like a big boss, but so we actually had representatives who were 
um, you know, under us that we said, if you don't feel comfortable coming to us, you can come to this person or this person. And uh, mm -hmm. sure enough, people came out and started telling us about issues they've had with other people. And it wasn't us, it was to them. So I think that was an important thing that we did that people felt comfortable to talk to someone that was, you know, maybe didn't have the power to fire them, <laughs> maybe is what it was, I don't know, which is so sad. I was so frustrated by that. If you are feeling that from another crew member or someone even above you, please let our supervisors know, right? So that mm -hmm. we can do something mm -hmm. about it because that's the problem is we often don't hear about it until after, right? Yeah, I mean, I think also it's like, um, you don't want to trouble the higher ups. Like they've got their hands full with enough going on right now with production that you don't want to say, hey, I got this personal thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like maybe it's that kind of thing. But at the same time, like, I wonder if there's like a, a turn of that where it's also saying like, if you're having a really, okay, I'm obviously, this is not in memo <laughs> form, but if you're having a crappy day, like, can you find one of these folks to talk to so it doesn't reverberate into the set? Because you know what? Yeah. We're all human. We all make mistakes. But let's all be accountable for our, where our words land. Because, you know, Absolutely. like, gosh, I remember, I remember like, um, I remember snapping at this guy. I was trying to find a way into this event and this doorman was being like really uh, not helpful. And I kind of snapped at him. And then at the end of the event, I went back and I was like, I just want to apologize. I don't think that was an appropriate way to speak to you. And he was like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Like he'd forgotten it already. But I think there's an accountability to yes. when we slip our humanity a little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. No, I, I mean, and I definitely didn't want to suggest that people don't have those moments, right? I think that's the other thing too, when you're talking about uh, when I direct, yeah. I'm going to do this is, um, daily check-ins yeah. with people as well, I think go a long way. I think we tend to forget when we're on set that everybody has a life outside of set and they have emotions, they have, you know, mental health issues. We're all struggling with stuff like that and to just check in with people as well. And I think I would encourage how, all the department how do you make time for that? I mean, I, you know, when you say hi to someone, when you're, maybe we're at craft table or we're just have a moment to talk to ask someone how they're doing, but like, really, how are you doing? How are you feeling yeah, today, right? right? Um, I think quite often we ask and just expect the answer fine. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, depending on the atmosphere, like if we were in a writing room, what I'll usually do in the writing room or, yeah. you know, when I, when I run a program of some sort where we're all in a room together, a great way to start the day is to just ask people where they're at emotionally. And mentally right mm -hmm. so um we mm -hmm. might just say what's what's one word that describes where you're at right now today or yeah. you know tell us a sentence or something like that just so people have yeah. a chance to just tell you where they're at because everyone's in a different headspace all the time right so i love that yeah yeah our head the head of our um social justice department uh sedna fiati she does things where she says uh um tell me how you're feeling but describe it like weather oh I love that and so you'll say, yeah like they, they'll find it interesting ideas and interesting ways of um saying like how like how are you because how are you it's you know it's funny that's how we started our conversation today but it seems so trite but if you actually put the intention of curiosity behind it it goes a long way yeah yeah absolutely yeah, yeah no that's uh and, you know, one thing, obviously, again, talking about uh, Indigenous culture that I definitely want to start incorporating into some of our projects is starting uh, starting the, uh, the shoot and maybe every day with a little bit of ceremony and just being able to ground everyone, yeah. I think, is, uh, is something Love I'm to start doing. Um, it's amazing what that does, you know, because I think just having that ceremony and just starting the day in a bit of contemplation, I think is a really nice way to start the day yeah. and at least start the shoot, right? So everyone's just like, we're all going in the same direction and we're all here together. And just get yeah. that feeling right at the beginning. I think that's really important um, just to take, like we were actually funny, I was just talking to uh, another producer about this of starting like the day with a three minute meditation. Three minutes, just put your tool down, 
and let's all just like focus on the fact that we're creating something really fun and cool and, and let's put our heads together. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Just that. Yeah. And I mean, it just gives everyone a chance to breathe and, and you're right. Sometimes I think we forget why we're doing what we're doing and we really are just like making this awesome project. Have you heard the yeah. joke? Um, what, <laughs> what did one brain surgeon say to the other brain surgeon? Relax. It's not like we're making oh. a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because I say the opposite. I was like, relax. It's not like we're standing at the top of a building with a, an organ in a cooler. Yeah, exactly. That's the, the thing is we have to like, you know, consider what industry we're in here and that none of this is yeah. higher. <laughs> I hope this is a step in the direction of finding more reasons to talk to each Absolutely. other more often because I think you're so oh. extraordinary. And I see what you've done in the past in elements of like helping folks and setting up things like mosaic and girls and gift. And I so hope that you can turn that same energy into like the production of you as a writer director, because I think Thank your, you. your voice is incredible. Thank you. I appreciate that. And then yeah. same to you. I'm excited to see everything yeah. that you're doing. I love talking to you. It's such a blast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like I'm so I'm just, yeah, learned how much firecracker has grown and developed and i mean it's 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 a power it really is and it's yeah. so exciting to see i love it well it's because of folks like you and like our core team and we're not done you know like it's sort of the same way it's just a path and we just keep keep going and seeing what else we can do to make a difference oh it's so great i love it yeah and so if ever you're feeling like you need to get heard a little bit louder. I really hope that you'll reach out to us and, Thank and you. use it. Yeah. And in any way, like, I mean, I hope that we can like keep in touch about, um, you know, often people will reach out to me and be like, Hey, do you know any funny writers? And I've sort of been developing a list of folks that are beyond the first tier of funny writers that we know right now in the community. So um, cool. yeah, maybe we can help each other on that list too. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, here's my wrap up questions. So first of all, you get to ask me a question. This is the turn the table thing. Okay. Um, I want to know what, what your goal is right now. What's your big dream, creative dream? Um, it's, it's, I want, I just want my own show. I want my own show where I get to say there's a five minute meditation and a dance break halfway through the day and there's no <laughs> water bottles. And I want to like, I want to, I want to build yes. a world of really cool people <laughs> together that are kind and funny. And we have just a riot creating something that we feel good about. I love that. Love that. Yeah. That's awesome. I just want to have some fun with some fun people. You know, it's why we started this, this career. I you know, got in this career be like, I want to work hard with the grumpy jerks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I tell myself a little because, you know, we run our own business and every time we run into someone who's a jerk, I'm like, I started to run my own business. So I didn't have to deal with people like that. Okay. We're not going to just made me laugh. You were saying about the dance breaks. Um, when I was uh, shadowing Leslie Hope, there's a whole scene in like the nightclub, the night car of the Snowpiercer. And there was all these like crazy costumes and like awesome dance music and everything like that. So they actually had a crew take where all the crew got to go in there and dance so, <laughs> so and love like it, love they it. were like spreading you know like everyone was wearing like little flashy lights and glowing things and flowers like stuff was just going all over the whole set the wardrobe department was bringing out yeah. all this stuff for everyone to wear it was like this total party scene on set that day it was so much fun like so yeah I love that yeah Wes, Wes Anderson has like a DJ and he or she spins spins records I don't know if that's a term anymore but the DJ plays music between takes I love that that's awesome right all right here's my firecracker wrap-up questions fill in the blank to me a firecracker is to me a firecracker is anyone who wants to be one and we will welcome yeah. them into the fold love it love it what do you want to be best known for I think I want to be best known for making stuff that represents people um, in a hum human and funny way and for making a change in the world. Yeah. Whatever a that big whoop, just no crash. Yeah. yeah. Just a little bit of a change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, if this was a movie, if your life was a movie, what has been like a turning point, a climactic point in your life that has turned things and changed things forever? My first child. It was actually um, so when I was when I was at home on mat leave with our oldest, who's 15 now, was when someone approached us and said, hey, do you guys want to try producing a show? And we were like, I was like, well, I'm at home just with a baby and uh, sure, let's try this. So when we were casting for our first uh, pilot, I had my little baby in a carrier next to us and he's 15 now. So that was a big turning point. Yeah. I love that. Um, What's something that people don't know about you? Before I got into this industry, I thought I'd make some extra money on the side. So I started a sex toy party business. Go to people's houses. That is something I didn't know. Sex toys. (laughs) I knew that you were a manager of blood donor clinics, and I knew you were a camp counselor. But this is not something I knew. (laughs) It's not on my resume, but it's fun. About a year, (laughs) I had a whole suitcase full of sex toys that I'd bring around. (laughs) Oh my gosh! Fantastic, fantastic. Um, What's your favorite mistake that you've made, and what did you learn from it? But, oh my God, like people sound is so important. It's the hardest thing to fix after. I, yeah, like some people think of soundscape as more important than the screen. That's a good yeah. answer. I, I could write a novel about my mistakes. Yes. Yeah. What's something that you haven't done yet, but you know you have to do? Direct. Yes. Thank you. See you yeah. there. Uh, who's a firecracker in your world? Who's somebody that you want to shine a light on? We are working with this lovely... A woman named Joy Haskell, who is uh, came up with an idea for a uh, TV show about Indigenous cousins, just a light comedy called Hey Cousin. And she is a firecracker if I've ever met one. She is amazing. She's just out there, go-getter, constantly pitching and meeting people and never taking no for an answer. And it's just been a pleasure to work with her and help her develop this series. Where do you find your power? My kids and my husband, for yeah. sure. We have three yeah. really amazing kids and travel. I love traveling. I know. Again. <laughs> yes. What is either the best advice you've ever gotten or the worst advice you ever got? Oh, I can tell you the, well, two best advice I've ever gotten. One is that when you're starting a relationship with anyone, whether it's like a contract or, you know, a business or anything like that, to get the legal stuff out of the way immediately, get that agreement signed and, and then you just put it in a drawer and forget about it unless you really need it, but just get it done Mm -hmm. right away. And uh, the other piece of advice I got was from the late Nick Rye, who was a producer of uh, second like SCTV and uh, mm-hmm. produced uh, White Coats or Intern Academy, whatever it was called. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I mm-hmm. mean, he's he was he started Super Channel. He's the one who started the new Super Channel. He's like our best friend's dad, and so we asked him for help when we started Caution May Contain Nuts. And the best advice he gave us was to basically assume that anything you make will be a worldwide success. And, uh, you know, make sure you're, you're legal and all your rights match that because <laughs> they were dealing with SCTV that was still a big success, but their rights to the music had expired uh-huh. and they were dealing with major headaches because of that. So oh we just assume everything's going to be a gigantic success. And I think that's good in so many levels. Yes, I love that. I love that. Final question is what's advice you would have given to your younger Camille? Honestly, I feel like our lives work out the way they're supposed to. So I would hate to change Mm -hmm. anything, but Mm -hmm. um, I sure would love to give myself a little bit more confidence and gumption and not be walked upon quite as many times. I probably would have made a few more people mad, but I wish I could be me back then and just not Mm -hmm. take any shit. So I told myself not to care so much about what people think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I have so enjoyed talking with you and I'm so excited to share this episode with folks. I know I've got, I've got projects simmering right now that you and I need to talk about. So we'll follow this up with another chat, but 
I'm awesome. uh, I'm in your corner along the way. Yeah, me too. I'm in your corner and yeah. any other firecrackers corner. If anyone needs anything, get at me. I'm happy so to great. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm like in the corner for directed by Camille Baudouin. I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. Yeah. Okay, my friend. Thank you so much for the time today. And thanks for juggling your family stuff. Thank you, Naomi. It's yeah. been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, I just have so much gratitude for Camille and this whole conversation. Now you can follow Camille at Mosaic Camille on Instagram at Mosaic ENT, as well as Girls in Film TV on both platforms. Watch out for Camille's upcoming releases from Mosaic, like the aforementioned Anarchy Anderson, a new comedy series about a teen girl vying for the role of class president despite the challenges of a quirky anti-establishment family and a fickle, unforgiving student body. Yes, that sounds like fun. There is a lot more coming through the Camille and Mosaic pipeline, so you're just going to have to stay tuned and find out as we find out. Follow along for the Camille Baudouin ride. I know I am, and I know I'm so jazzed to see what Camille does as a director, as a writer, as a creator, as a producer. She's, uh, she's changing the world. I believe that. Winnie Wong is our Firecracker head producer. Follow her at wonder underscore Wong on Instagram and wonder underscore Wong 8 on Twitter. Sydney Nielsen is our head of post-production and head writer. You can follow them at Sydney underscore Nielsen, Sydney like Australia, Nielsen like milk. This episode was edited by Winnie Wong and our new editor, Shane Stoltz. Now you can follow them at Shane Stoltz. Great to have you here, Shane. Firecrack department just got one Shane better. The rest of the team comes at you from Toronto, Los Angeles, Austin, London, Dubai, and truly from all over the world. Get into the full Firecracker Department core team at firecrackerdepartment.com slash about because we're always updating and we're always growing. Stay tuned to our newsletter for advanced updates on our monthly meditations, upcoming mentorship workshops, live script department readings, festival partnerships, weekly writing workouts, and dates for 2021, and so much more. There's lots going on in Firecracker Department. Now, whether you're a first time or a long time listener to the Firecracker Department, we always, always want to hear from you. We love hearing what quotes, the specifics, the nuances of things that stuck with you. We mean it. We really do. And we respond to every single thing that comes our way. If it gives your brain goosebumps or it piques your curiosity or makes you want to stop and write something down, send it back to us or our Firecracker guest or both. I mean, everybody likes to know that when they put something out into the world, that it resonates. And if it sparks something in you, use that creativity to take some creative action. Share it because it just reverberates, you know? If you see somebody being creative, that might spark somebody else's creativity. So pay it forward. Thanks also to Jeff Malutinovic and Igor Korea for our theme music. And thanks to you. Yeah, you. Sitting there, driving there, walking there, working out there, and taking time to listen. We know there's a lot of options out there and we really appreciate you choosing us. We hope to see you at maybe brunch, maybe the writing workshop. And until next time, thank you for listening to the Firecracker Department. We'll see you next time. Bye.